Joseph was anxiously pacing around his hotel room and began to wonder what was taking so long. He was taking slow, thoughtful laps around his room, and with each circuit, he would pass by the window so he could take another look across the street. It was a bright morning, to be sure, but he could tell by the heavy coats worn on the street outside that today was going to be particularly cold, even for a January in Berlin. But it was cozy inside the hotel room. Joseph's friend, Ernst, had put on a fire, and it crackled on as his boots paced on the wood floor, then the rug, then out the window, then the floor, then the rug, out the window. Each time he looked across the street, Joseph thought to himself that he would be able to tell, just by the look on his face, if their plan had worked. Sometimes he would take a break from his pacing, and he'd rush over to his diary to write about his feelings. He wrote, Our hearts are torn between doubt, hope, joy, and discouragement. We have been disappointed too often for us to believe wholeheartedly in the great miracle. The last two years had felt like a lifetime. It had been campaign after campaign, election after election, each one gaining more supporters than the last. Every speech in front of a crowd of thousands, every backdoor deal, all came down to today, to what the look on his leader's face would be when he walked out of that building across the street. Joseph was staying at the Hotel Kaiserhof, which had become something of an unofficial headquarters for the Nazi party. It was strategically located right across the street from the Reich Chancellery, basically the White House of the German Republic. At the Kaiserhof, they could hold party meetings with top officials and direct negotiations with the national government, right in the heart of Berlin. So much had changed in the last two years. The Nazi party had become the largest political party in the country, holding hundreds of seats in the Reichstag, or the German Congress. Joseph took a break from his anxious pacing and sat down to try to clear his head. He thought about how happy he was that the Republic was now on the verge of collapse. He thought about how the German people had endured five national elections, three different chancellors, just in the last two years alone. All of it was in the name of trying to save the country from the second financial crisis in a decade that was devastating workers, business owners, farmers, merchants, everyone. Joseph lit a cigarette. He had predicted the second financial crisis. In his mind, the German Republic had built its recovery on quicksand. From his chair, Josef could hear the crowd on the street beginning to grow. Their chatter was becoming audible from his hotel window. They were waiting, as Josef was, with a growing tension. They weren't very loud yet. But maybe, he thought, just maybe, they will get a chance to sing tonight. He looked up at the clock, one minute to noon. He stood up again and returned to his pacing loop. The floor, the rug, the window. The floor, the rug, the window. The window. He stopped next to his friend Ernst, who was looking out with him. And for an eternity, the two men stared at the door of the Reich Chancellery, their life's work to be decided in only a few moments. And then the door across the street opened. Adolf Hitler stepped into the sun and looked up at a window where Josef Goebbels was anxiously watching. Hitler said nothing, but locked eyes with Josef from the street below, and Josef could see that Hitler's eyes were full of tears. And then he smiled. I'm Michael Trapani, and this is How to Start a War, a story from the past that can help us understand our world today. Before we go on, while the characters we follow are at the center of this story, they are not the heroes. This story is about what happens when good people do nothing to stop the worst people on Earth while they still can. Let's continue. Chapter 2, 
divided we fall. Let's go back to where we left off, eight years before Josef's anxious pacing in the Hotel Kaiserhof. When Adolf Hitler emerged from prison in the last months of 1924, serving only nine months of his five-year term, he found that he had returned to a very different Germany than the one he tried to overthrow the year before. He came out of prison ready to return to his revolution in Germany, but Germany was no longer ready for him. The great inflation of the German mark, the collapse of the German economy, seemed to have been completely turned around, as if by a miracle. German economists had been brought in to stabilize the currency, and it worked. Neighboring countries saw what was happening to Germany and absolved much of the German war reparations. The economy itself was stabilizing, due in large part to massive loans coming in from the United States. Culture was returning to Germany, and Berlin was emerging as a capital in Europe for the theater and the arts. Germany had elected a new president, Paul von Hindenburg, the former commander-in-chief during the Great War. Remember General Ludendorff from the last episode? Hindenburg was Ludendorff's boss during the war. He was just as, if not more, heroic in the eyes of the German people. He was Eisenhower. You know the Hindenburg Zeppelin? That was named after this guy. Let's just say that, at the moment, the president was very popular. After Hitler's coup attempt, the Nazi party was banned, and Hitler was forbidden from speaking publicly. The Nazis that were left were doing their work under a different name. Altogether, the stabilizing economy and popular government had disarmed the message of Hitler's party, and Germans had lost interest in his old calls for revolution. It seemed to many that the Nazi party was dead and buried, a small upstart that was quickly put down, and now just a distant memory. Hitler realized that if he didn't want a repeat of his failed coup attempt, if he wanted to take control of this Germany, he would need to take a very different approach. He would not attempt to overthrow the government by violent means, no. This time, he would do it legally constitutionally, and with the support of the people in power who had so easily quashed his one-night rebellion in Munich the year before. The first objective was to find out a way to make the Nazi party legal again. A few months after Hitler's release, he appealed to the German courts to allow his party to publicly exist once more, promising to pursue legal means of his cause. After several court battles, the Nazis appealing to the freedom of assembly and speech, the courts relented. The ban on the Nazi party and on Hitler's public speaking was lifted. Now it was time to organize. If Hitler was going to have any chance of achieving a popular movement that was constitutional, the party would need to organize, and it would need to scale up. Hitler designed an ingenious way to set up a political party structure. He began to set up the party as if the Nazis were already in power. He would set up local party quasi-governments all over Germany in every state and major city. He developed a bureaucracy of regional leaders who reported up to him as if they were local governors. He created several ministries, a ministry of the interior, a ministry of defense, agriculture, economy, labor, and more. His objective was to create a government system that could operate as if it were already in power. Then, once they came into power, all they would need to do is swap themselves in. How would they come into power? Elections. They would do it through the Reichstag. Let's talk about this for a second, because the German Republic was set up differently from the American Republic. Here's how it worked. The German Weimar Republic, as it was called, like any democracy, was complex by design, distributing power instead of centralizing it. The German Republic had several pillars of power, but for the purposes of our story and for Hitler's plan, there were only three that mattered. The president, the Chancellor, and the Reichstag. A warning to historical civics nerds, I'm going to dramatically simplify this in order to do it quickly. First, the President. 
The president of Germany was not at all like the president of the United States. He didn't really govern that much. It was meant to be a unifying position, standing above party politics. It was very ceremonial. You'll have to forgive the comparison, but the easiest way to think about the president of the German Republic is comparing it to the Queen of England. Sure, it's technically the head of state, but it was not the day-to-day -day operator of the government. The biggest difference between the president of Germany and a monarch was that the president was elected by popular vote. Underneath the president was the second pillar of power, the chancellor, or the head of the government. The closest comparison to a chancellor is a prime minister. They're not elected directly by the people, but appointed by the president based on whatever political party had the majority in the legislature. The chancellor ran the country. It had a cabinet with ministers and secretaries, and much like the prime minister, the chancellor governed by consent of the legislature. Which brings us to the third pillar, the Reichstag. The Reichstag was Congress. It was Parliament. It was the legislative body of the German Republic. Like Congress, it was the Reichstag's job to make laws. The members of the Reichstag were elected by voters, and whichever party held the majority of seats in the Reichstag would get to be in charge of the government. That government would be led by a chancellor. Make sense? The president, the ceremonial head of state elected by the people. The chancellor, who was appointed by the president and usually belonged to whatever party was in the majority of the Reichstag. And the Reichstag, who wrote laws and were elected by the people. It was a good, democratic system. Hitler's path to power would be through the Reichstag. Here was the plan. He would get enough Nazi representatives elected into the Reichstag, and then, over time, become the majority party. Then, as leader of the majority party, Hitler would be appointed as chancellor, or maybe even run for president himself. A simple, legal path to power, a complete about-face from his rash, violent revolt plan from the year before. Now, while Hitler's new plan to gain control of the government would be legal, that didn't mean he would completely abandon the shady tactics that had worked last time around. Another lesson he learned from his failed rebellion is that while stormtroopers were not good at fighting against professional law enforcement, they were still very good at intimidating political opponents. Marching menacingly through the streets, starting riots, counter-protesting, causing mayhem. Hitler wanted to bring back the stormtroopers that had marched with him in Munich and revived the SA, an acronym for a German term that translates to Storm Detachment. Hitler believed that this sometimes discipline, most times rowdy physical arm of the Nazi party, with the right leadership, could be his most valuable instrument. But who could lead such an unpredictable group of men, whose purpose was often to cause violence? Who in Germany could control the chaos of an orchestrated riot, or break up demonstrations of political rivals? It was like trying to wield a tornado and use it for your own ends. There was only one man in Germany for the job. It was a man who had built the original SA from the ground up. He was a commander who the men were already used to following. A man who had been in political exile since the failed coup. A man named Ernst Ruhm. After his part in the Beer Hall Rebellion in Munich, Ruhm was serving probation and had sworn off political life. But Ruhm was also Hitler's closest friend. And after enough convincing, some kind words, and urgent pleas, Rome agreed to return to the party, bringing with him the command and discipline the SA needed to be effective. Under Rome, the SA became a force in the streets of Berlin, intimidating rival parties, breaking up counter-protests with large-scale brawls. I should be clear about this. These brawls were not political activists shoving each other around. These were violent, murderous, battles in the city streets, with weapons and blood and death. So now, everything was in place. 
You had the newly reorganized Nazi party working legally to gain power and popular support, humming like a well-oiled machine in city after city all over Germany, slowly making small gains with every event, every pamphlet, every speech. They had all the foundations of a popular political movement. All except popularity, that is. As we learned, Germany was recovering, and it looked as if the disastrous collapse from the years before had been stopped. Until 1929, when the world turned upside down. The American stock market crash of 1929 initiated the largest global depression in modern history. Every country on earth was affected. Businesses collapsed. Banks ran out of money. Unemployment soared. The richest economies on the planet now found themselves in a state of total failure. And Germany, who was already in a fragile recovery, lost everything it had gained and was in freefall once again. Its markets crashed. Manufacturing plummeted. One-third of the country was out of work. Those loans coming in from the United States, the ones that were keeping Germany afloat, stopped coming. Without this income, the social programs in Germany went bankrupt. The bottom had fallen out of the German economy, and nobody knew what to do. President Hindenburg demanded action from the German government to stabilize the economy. The chancellor at the time asked Hindenburg for emergency powers that would help him make laws faster, without needing the approval of the Reichstag. He made the argument that Britain and the United States were doing something similar in order to deal with the crisis in their own countries. Hindenburg reluctantly allowed it. He didn't like the idea of cutting out the members of the Reichstag, but he also knew that if the Reichstag didn't like what the Chancellor was doing, the German constitution said that they could always override him and take back control. Which is exactly what they did, almost instantly. The Reichstag rescinded the Chancellor's emergency powers and took away the Chancellor's ability to make laws on his own. The Chancellor responded by dissolving the Reichstag, calling for new elections. His aim was to get members elected who would support his call for emergency powers. And so now we have a devastating economic depression, an embattled Chancellor trying to shore up support, and new elections being called, with every seat in the Reichstag up for grabs. Hitler knew that his time to strike was now. The plan was to use this election to fill the Reichstag with as many Nazi seats as he could. In order to do that, he would need to activate the party organization across the country and run a campaign that would appeal to the masses. Hitler needed a master of media and publishing and propaganda that could speak directly to the problems that working Germans faced every day in the Depression. He needed a campaign that was so well run, it would propel the Nazi party out of obscurity and into the mainstream. He needed Josef Goebbels. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Michael. I just wanted to thank you for listening. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more, please give us a rating and write a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us. When you write a review, it helps more people find how to start a war. And thanks again. Now, back to the story. In February of 1930, an article published in a newspaper was making its way around Berlin. It was written by Paul Josef Goebbels. He went by Josef. The article was a sad story, but also about a cause greater than any single tragedy, one that was worth dying for. This is an excerpt from that article that Goebbels wrote. It was late in the evening, and I was enjoying the rare pleasure of a good book. I was relaxed and at ease. The telephone rang. I picked up the phone with trepidation. It is worse than I expected. Horst Vessel has been shot! Trembling with fear, I asked, Dead? No, the voice said, but there is no hope. I felt as if the walls were collapsing around me. It was unbelievable. It cannot be. A few days later, I step into a small hospital room and am shocked 
by the sight. A bullet in the head has done terrible damage to this heroic lad. His face is distorted. I can hardly recognize him. He only repeats a few words. I am happy. He still believes. He is improving. The fever has dropped. The wounds healing. He sat up part way and talked. About us, about the movement, about his comrades. A lonely mother sits outside. Her face reflects the question, will he make it? What could one say but yes? It is 6.30 Sunday morning. He dies after a hard struggle. As I stand by his bed, I cannot believe that it is the boy named Horst Vessel. The half-opened eyes stare glassily into the eternity that we all face. The small, cold hands lie in the midst of flowers, white and red tulips and violets. Horst Vessel has passed on. His mortal remains have given up struggle and conflict. Yet I can feel almost physically his spirit rise, to live on with us. He marches in the spirit of our ranks. By now, you might have realized that this story was not an eyewitness account of actual events. It's not an article written by a journalist. It's a perfect example of propaganda, misleading, biased information designed to promote a political cause. When Hitler was rebuilding the Nazi party, he understood the importance of propaganda when trying to build support. After all, it was Hitler himself who oversaw the propaganda team when he first joined the fledgling Nazi party years ago. From the beginning, Hitler saw the mastery of propaganda in Joseph Goebbels. He didn't just write it, film it, and produce it. He actually believed it. He was swept away by it. Goebbels was the perfect messenger for Hitler's cause, and day after day, he would lead a team of writers, filmmakers, and public speakers to flood German popular culture with embellished stories like the one I just read. It's difficult to know which details of Goebbels' story are actually true, and it's safe to bet that the most dramatic details were almost certainly added by the author. What we do know for sure is that Horst Wessel was a mid-level member of the Nazi party in Berlin, a young man who had left his home to fight with the Nazis in the brawling SA. He was shot and killed by a member of the rival Communist Party. Of course, given all of the violence the SA was drumming up at the time, one more dead SA trooper in the streets of Berlin wouldn't have made much cause for Josef Goebbels to write such a moving article like the one I just read if Wessel hadn't written what he did. Before he died, the young Horst Vessel composed a song, which Goebbels would shape and form into a myth. The legend of Horst Vessel, the young German boy who believed in a cause so much that he sacrificed his life. Goebbels would turn it into the Nazi party's anthem. The campaign that Hitler and Goebbels would run in the first Reichstag election of 1930 would be built on the anger and frustration that Germans felt about the economic crisis. It would revive the resentment that Germans felt about their place on the world stage since the end of the war. They developed a campaign narrative that addressed the concerns of German workers struggling to keep their families fed and looking for something or someone to blame. The campaign narrative centered around the idea that the German Republic had become a failed state that was incapable of taking care of its citizens. It went something like this. And a warning, this is a framing of history and society by Nazis. Some of it will be difficult to hear, and you should know what to expect. Keep in mind that this is all false. Here's how it went. The German Republic was a failure from the beginning. After all, the first thing it did was sign the Treaty of Versailles, a so-called peace treaty that had crippled the German economy and destroyed all hopes of becoming a strong state once again. The most troubling parts of the Nazi campaign narrative went on to incorporate Hitler's extreme anti-Semitism, saying that 
The Republic also had no control over the bankers and the Jews that were keeping down the common worker and making those at the top more prosperous. The Nazi propaganda falsely equated the Jewish people to bankers and lenders, an anti-Semitic trope designed to paint an innocent group of people as unfairly more prosperous than others, just because of their faith and heritage. There is much more for us to dig into when it comes to the Nazis' treatment of the Jewish people, and we will in a later chapter. The narrative goes on. If elected, the Nazi party promised to make Germany into a great power once more. They would throw out the Treaty of Versailles, refuse to pay war reparations, end government corruption, bring those responsible for this depression to justice, and provide every German with work and bread. On election night, September 14, 1930, Hitler, Goebbels, and the Nazi party leadership had hoped that their campaign had resonated, and that maybe they could pull off an upset. There were 577 seats in the German Reichstag. The Nazi party, before this election, only held a meager 12 seats, making them one of the smallest parties in the chamber. The goal for the 1930 election had been to quadruple that number and bring their seat to a count of 50, allowing them to become a vocal, if still small, voice in the German Reichstag. As the results came in, it began to dawn on Hitler and Goebbels that they would not only meet their goal of 50 seats, but the votes coming in were starting to look like something much bigger. Maybe even the largest upset in the history of the German Republic. 50 seats? The German people had given the Nazis enough votes to get 107 seats. The Nazis were no longer the smallest, most obscure, most radical party in the German Reichstag, it was now the second largest. The election sent shockwaves to the German Republic. The president, the chancellor, even the Nazi party leadership themselves. It was a better outcome than even Hitler could have ever dreamed. The week after the election, Goebbels published an article in one of the Nazi-owned newspapers in Berlin, titled 107. He wrote, That is a nice, round, impressive and weighty number. It hardly seems possible that we now have that many members in the Reichstag, that we are now the second largest party. Overnight, we have changed from a small and despised group to a leading mass party. Our victory on 14 September is unprecedented in political history. Now, we must transform words into deeds. We have recovered from last week's surprising and completely unexpected triumph. Our hearts are once more hot and our minds cool. We will give our full efforts for the good of the community, striving to win back the honor and prosperity for the fatherland. We will stand or fall according to Germany's fate. The Nazi party had a massive victory, but it was not alone. There was another shocking upset in the 1930 Reichstag election, the communists. On the other end of the populist spectrum, the Communist Party had also won 23 additional seats in the Reichstag, bringing their seat count to 77. So now, more than half of the Reichstag were controlled by polar opposite populist movements, the Nazis and the Communists. And they despised each other. Where were all the votes for these populist movements coming from? It wasn't just the working class, as Goebbels might want the public to believe. In fact, the biggest swing votes were coming from the middle class, who were desperate for answers as the economic crisis showed no end in sight. So for now, Hitler needed to start delivering on the promises that he made, to show the people of Germany that they had voted well, and that the Nazis were a party to take real steps to fix things. In order to do this, he needed the support from the powerful institutions that oversaw German peace and prosperity. The military and the corporations. For the military, Goebbels directed a new propaganda strategy. The Nazis started publishing articles and pamphlets specifically directed at the military to try to garner support from the rank and file. 
Hitler would give speeches about how the army, so small and restricted in size by the Treaty of Versailles, would be once again made into the most formidable fighting force on the continent. This wasn't just a patriotic appeal to natural pride. This was a strategic message that appealed to young officers. It was the opportunity that a larger military brought. When a military grew in size, more officer positions would need to be filled, and more lucrative career paths for the ambitious officers. The message caught wind in the German military, who already had contempt for the government that had prevented them from growth, and at several points in the following years, soldiers were caught distributing Nazi propaganda and were court-martialed. It wasn't just the rank and file that the Nazis began to cozy up with. Hitler's close confidant, Hermann Göring, longtime Nazi and former fighter pilot during the war, built connections through the military contractors and gave Hitler access to the generals, and with it, legitimacy. Now, the corporations, who were beginning to see the changing tide in German politics, started to throw their funding into the Nazi party. Because now, there was a real possibility of them coming into power in the near future. The corporate leaders disliked Hitler's radical points of view and his anti-Semitism, but also saw that Hitler was fighting against the communists, who called for nationalizing their companies. To them, Hitler appeared to be the best of two troublesome options. And so they threw in their lot with a populist movement who would maintain a business-friendly approach to the economy. They also knew that the Nazi party would need more money in order to scale up their bid for power, and believed that if they gave enough money to Hitler, he would be indebted to them, and he would do their bidding. These were the financial and political alliances that Hitler began to construct over the next year, all while the Depression continued to devastate the German economy. Meanwhile, there was still no majority in the Reichstag. The whole purpose for the elections had failed and it remained in a stalemate with the Chancellor. The German people continued to be desperate for a solution. The next year, 1932, was going to be a big year in German politics. There was going to be a presidential election. The current president, Hindenburg, was still very popular. All of the blame of the government in action was placed squarely on the Chancellor, his cabinet, and the Reichstag. If Hindenburg ran again, he would be a shoo-in for re-election. Hitler had become a household name in Germany by now too, but not nearly as popular as Hindenburg. And so, as 1932 approached, Hitler was faced with a decision. Should he run for president? On one hand, Hindenburg's popularity made it unlikely that Hitler would win, which would be an embarrassment and a setback for the Nazis. But on the other hand, if Hitler didn't run, there was a risk of losing momentum and not building on the recent victories, taking the Nazis out of the political spotlight in what would be the biggest election in German history. At last, Hindenburg declared that he would run for re-election. Shortly after, Hitler announced that he would run for president against him. The showdown for the presidency would now begin. Hindenburg, the stable incumbent, against Hitler the upstart challenger. It was an election season the likes of which Germans had never seen before. Hitler doubled down on the campaign narrative that drove the success of his Reichstag campaign from a year and a half ago. Goebbels' propaganda machine cranked up their production to a maximum, distributing millions of posters, pamphlets, and flyers. The Nazis started their own news network of newspapers that printed an endless stream of Nazi propaganda in every city in Germany. Hitler used, a novelty at the time, airplanes to travel quickly from city to city, hosting rally after rally, whipping their crowds up into a frenzy, growing his audiences from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands. Hitler's campaign is also one of the earliest examples of using film and audio recordings of speeches for campaign ads. While Hitler and Goebbels were blazing a new trail of propaganda innovation to gain support, Hindenburg had his own advantages as the incumbent. As the head of state, he could reserve all radio time for his own campaign, which made Hitler furious. German presidential elections worked like this. Several candidates would run. Then there was an election. 
whoever was in the lead and had more than half of the votes would become president. If no candidate got more than half, the top two candidates would run in a second runoff election, where whoever got the most votes would win. On election night, March 13, 1932, the results began to roll in. Hitler had received 30% of the votes. Hindenburg had received 49.6% of the votes. So, while Hindenburg had gotten the most votes, he had been just shy, 0.4% of what he needed to be elected president outright. And so, in one month, there would be a final runoff election between Hitler and Hindenburg. For the runoff election, Hitler's campaign strategy shifted. He started to focus less on the problems facing Germany, and instead struck a more positive tone. His campaign speeches began to paint an optimistic picture of Germany's future with him in office. A new prosperity, a new power that Germans would see with a Hitler administration. He ran a blitz campaign by airplane that not even Hindenburg could keep up with. It was named Hitler over Germany, a term coined by Goebbels to describe Hitler flying from city to city, up to five cities in a single day, holding rallies, taking photographs, giving speeches, building support. Hitler and Goebbels weren't the only party members who were doing their part for the election. During the runoff in April, the brawling SA leader Ernst Röhm had mobilized the stormtroopers to take to the streets, breaking up Hindenburg rallies, marching through his speeches, and most notably engaging in street wars against the communists, which were now getting entirely out of hand, with multiple deaths every night in riot after bloody riot. Finally, on April 10th, the polls closed and the final election results had been counted. Hitler had received 36% of the vote. Hindenburg, 53. The German people had spoken clearly in favor of the Republic. A defeat. But Hitler still had doubled the Nazi vote from their first victory and proved that the momentum was still swinging towards the Nazi party. President Hindenburg saw it differently. In July, trying to use the momentum of his win to silence the unruly Nazis in the Reichstag, appointed a new chancellor, a businessman named Franz von Papen, and demanded that he form a majority government in the Reichstag once and for all. In order to do this, the new Chancellor Papen ordered to dissolve the Reichstag, and once again called for new Reichstag elections. He did this in hopes of getting more moderate members of the parliament elected, and fewer Nazis. He had hoped that Hitler's loss in the presidential election was a sign of a slowdown of the Nazi support. A new election meant a new war in the streets between the two rival populist movements. The Nazi SA and the communist street armies launched a streak of violence and murder unprecedented in the cities of Germany. And the results of this Reichstag election? Remember the last election where the Nazis went from 12 seats to 107 seats? This time, the Nazi party got enough votes to go from 107 seats to 230 seats. Chancellor Papen's plan had backfired. The Nazis were now the largest party in the Reichstag, and more powerful than ever. Now, the Nazis were the largest party, but they still did not hold the majority of seats. And because of this, Hitler still did not have enough to automatically become chancellor. Hindenburg continued to resist the idea of Hitler and his dangerous ideologies to be put in such a high position of power. Instead, Hitler would try to get a Nazi into the seat of Reichstag president. Reichstag president, that's different from president of the republic. Reichstag president is sort of the speaker of the house who presides over the Reichstag and is elected by other members. It was an important role because much like the speaker of the house role in the United States, the Reichstag president could decide what issues the Reichstag would take up and what laws it would vote on. More importantly, it could also call for a special vote, something called a vote of no confidence. 
a vote of no confidence is exactly what it sounds like. That the Reichstag has literally no confidence in the current chancellor. It's basically like impeaching the chancellor. Such a vote would dissolve both the Reichstag and the chancellor, forcing new elections, and forcing President Hindenburg to appoint yet another chancellor. Now, in order to get a Nazi into the seat of Reichstag president, the Reichstag would need to form an alliance with another political party in the chamber. They extended an olive branch to another far-right party in the Reichstag that had 75 seats, and together they formed a coalition that voted for Hitler's close confidant, the stout Hermann Göring, to the Reich president chair. He won. The Nazi party coalition was now in complete control of the Reichstag. Wielding this new power, the newly minted Reichstag president Göring did what everyone expected him to do. He called for a vote of no confidence, and were joined by their new allies in the Reichstag. The vote passed, 513 to 32. This forced yet another election in November. The German people were beginning to grow tired. And it wasn't just the people who were tired. The Nazi party simply didn't have enough money to sustain these elections. Not only were there an abnormal amount of elections to support, but the corporations who were bankrolling the Nazi party were starting to move away from Hitler, seeing him now as a figure to be concerned about, realizing the extents he was willing to go to obtain power, his racial rhetoric continuing to become a larger part of his agenda. As a result, the party simply didn't have enough money to run the type of campaign they were well known for. Even so, Goebbels spent every cent they had and threw it all into one last campaign. The results showed that the momentum for the Nazi party was finally slowing. The final tally of what was now the fifth national election in 18 months resulted in the Nazis actually losing 2 million votes, losing more than 30 seats, a major blow to the momentum of the movement. The legend of the Invincible Party was dying fast. But the Nazis weren't the only one in a bind here. The German government was still non-functional. No working majority had been formed, and the Chancellor was still running under emergency decree. The Reichstag was still divided and split into its own ideological factions. And since it was President Hindenburg's top priority to resume a functioning government, to unstick the stalemate that had been going on for the past two years, he needed to start thinking outside of his comfort zone. President Hindenburg decided to reach out to Hitler to see if there was an agreement that could be reached. He invited Hitler to the Reich Chancellery and made him an offer. He could either be vice-chancellor under Papen, or he could be made into chancellor on the condition that he could form a working majority in the Reichstag. Somehow. Of course, Hitler would never be able to form a working majority. After the fifth election in two years, the house was too divided. Given those two unsuitable options, Hitler said no and continued his demands for full chancellorship. This Hindenburg would not give him. Once again, Hitler had come so close, but had failed. So Hindenburg appointed a new chancellor, Kurt von Schleicher, a real power broker in German politics. Schleicher had risen to the top through backdoor dealings and intrigue, but no one seemed to think he would last very long. He was not a populist like Hitler or Hindenburg, and operated much better in the shadows. And now that he was finally in power, it started to become obvious that this new chancellor was much better at scheming than he was at governing. All efforts by the new Chancellor Schleicher to form a majority failed. The state of the Nazi party wasn't much better. After the last election, the party was broke. They had gone so far into debt that the printing presses of their famous newspapers had threatened to stop completely if they didn't receive the back payments that they were owed. Some of Hitler's more pragmatic advisors were beginning to tell him that his all-or-nothing approach may need to be reconsidered, and that he should at least think about working with this government before it was too late. It was at this time 
that fate threw Hitler a gift. Remember Chancellor Papen? He was the last chancellor, the one who had been voted out with no confidence, who was in power just before Schleicher. He felt that his time in power had been cut short, and now he was going to make a bid to get it back. He didn't think he'd be able to become chancellor again, but maybe if Papen presented an option to the aging President Hindenburg that included Hitler as chancellor, himself as vice-chancellor, and a cabinet full of non-Nazis, he could give Hindenburg the declawed Hitler that he wanted. It would also solve President Hindenburg's concerns of Hitler turning the cabinet into a dictatorship, since there would be members from different parties in the cabinet to check him if he tried to do anything too rash. He presented his plan to the president, along with a surprising supporter of the plan, the president's own son. The aging Hindenburg, now slipping into senility, reluctantly agreed to the plan. Even he could see that Schleicher's government, within a few weeks, was already ineffective. Hindenburg, on January of 1933, asked for Schleicher's resignation. Another chancellor had tried, another failed. There were just no options left. When rumors began to come out of the Reichstag that Hitler might be appointed chancellor, the word spread to his supporters, who flooded the streets once again. Rumors also spread to his opponents, and a massive trade union protest was organized in the city center, over 100,000 people protesting in opposition to the Nazis. The president summoned Hitler to Berlin. Hitler took his regular room at the Hotel Kaiserhof, right across the street from the Reich Chancellery, where Hitler was so close to the office he had longed for. He was joined by his closest confidants, SA leader Ernst Röhm and campaign manager Josef Goebbels, and they waited there anxiously for Hermann Göring, who was at the Reichstag trying to get the latest news as to what the summons was for. And so they waited. And then the door burst open. It was Goring. He had news. Hitler was going to be named Chancellor tomorrow. The men in the room said nothing. They just looked at each other in stunned silence. Could it be? Was all of this work actually about to come to fruition? Then Hitler stood up. The rest of the men stood up with him. He slowly walked over to Göring and, without saying a word, shook his hand. He then turned to Goebbels and shook his hand. They all exchanged this solemn handshake in silence, processing what might just be the success of their life's work. But then the door burst open again, an aide had arrived. He had claimed in a panic that there was word from an army base in Berlin that the ousted ex-Chancellor Schleicher was planning a military coup overnight and was mobilizing the troops to arrest President Hindenburg and proclaim a military dictatorship. It galvanized the Nazi leadership into action. Hitler ordered Göring to run to the chancellery as fast as he could so that he could warn the president and Papen of what Schleicher was trying to do. He phoned the chief of police, alerting him that he should staff the chancellery with police battalions to defend them in case Schleicher's rogue troops tried to storm the government buildings. Then he ordered his friend Röhm to mobilize the entire SA into the streets of Berlin to defend the chancellery. Working until five in the morning, all the arrangements had been made to alert the government of the potential coup. There was nothing more that Hitler or the party leadership could do and so they took a few hours to sleep. As the sun rose on January 30th, Joseph was anxiously pacing around his hotel room, and he began to wonder what was taking so long. And then the door across the street opened. Adolf Hitler stepped into the sun and looked up at the window where Josef Goebbels was anxiously watching. Hitler said nothing, but locked eyes with Josef from the street below. And Josef could see that Hitler's eyes 
were full of tears. And then he smiled. On January 30th, 1933, at the stroke of noon, the German Republic died. There was no military coup. There was no dramatic seizure of power. There were no assassinations. There was no constitutional rewrite. There was no civil war. There was no grand conspiracy. There were only elections. Factor two on how to start a war is lack of unified opposition. As we've learned in this episode, while the Nazis very quickly became the largest party in the Reichstag, they were never a majority. They never even came close. At their most powerful point, they only held 38% of the votes. But conflicting ideologies in the Reichstag prevented the non-Nazis from uniting as a check against a new threat. If the opposition to Hitler had united against him, forming a working majority through compromise, Hitler may have never come to power. From that day forth, they would not have a chance to form an opposition again. That night, the SA marched through the streets of Berlin in torchlight. Disciplined columns spread from block to block like a river of fire. As if on parade, the troopers marched past the window of the Reich Chancellery, turning their heads towards the window, saluting their new chancellor as he reviewed his men from the second floor. Goebbels, the man who had ran Hitler's campaigns, was overwhelmed by emotion. He wrote that night in his diary, Berlin does not dream of going to rest, and in unison with this city, the entire Reich is thrilling with joy and emotion. This moment, a column of marchers turns into the Wilhelmstrasse, swastika banners float above it, and the red flags are dipped before the leader to greet him in silence and veneration. And out of the youthful throats, horsed vessels' eternal hymn bursts forth. We remain together until daybreak. The long night is over. The sun has risen again on Germany. Overjoyed and delirious, the marching men began to sing. How to Start a War is written and produced by me. I'm Michael Trapani. Thanks for listening.